1929, United States President Herbert Hoover, I underscore that he was a Republican, launched an unprecedented investigation by eminent scientists into private American life. The assigned task was to, quote, help all of us see where social stresses are occurring and where major efforts should be undertaken to deal with them constructively. The result was a massive two-volume, 1,568-page report entitled Recent Social Trends. It had one recurrent and perhaps surprising theme, again from 90 years ago. The American family was in irreversible institutional decline. As the Committee of Scientists summarized, the factory has displaced the family as the chief unit of economic production. Meanwhile, most educational and protective functions of the family have also been transferred to the state or to industry. Americans, they elaborated, had sometimes forgotten the degree to which the family in pre-industrial times had been the chief economic, schooling, and security institution of society. The home was, in short, a factory. In marriages, men and women sought not only a mate and companion, but a business partner. Children were not only objects of affection, but also productive agents. Each family furnished protection to its own members, and the family was a center for religious and recreational acts. By 1930, though, the average family produced little food, clothing, or much else, while the teaching function had shifted to schools. Meanwhile, the practice of family prayer was in apparent decline, and recreation moved to dance halls, movie houses, and ballparks. What was left were merely the personality function of the family, whereby each family member adapted himself or herself to the outside world. The committee agreed with the popular judgment that, and I quote here, some homes are merely parking places for children and parents who spend their active hours elsewhere. Tellingly, the, committee, the research committee emphasized that children were diminishing in number as well. Fertility and average family size were falling. In 1930, for the first time in American history, the census showed fewer children under age five than did the prior census. Meanwhile, as families, families shed their historic functions, children were individualized meaning that a child is now regarded more as an individual and less as a bearer of a family name. Fathers and husbands had largely surrendered their roles as arbiters of inter-family disputes. Wives, meanwhile, faced a crisis of identity, where their productive tasks, such as sewing, food preservation, and cooking, now surrendered to industry and with fewer children being born, they contributed proportionately less to family support. Indeed, the rise of factories had obviously reduced the economic importance of the woman in the home. One result was a surge in the entry of women into outside occupations during the 1920s. As Americans no longer made things in their homes, the scientists continued, the efforts of family members are focused instead on buying a living. The resulting proliferation of consumer goods soared during the 1920s. 
New practices of advertising pushed this along, involving what the scientists called commercial stimulation on the greatest scale yet attempted. Between 1909 and 1929, the value of advertising in magazines rose sixfold, reaching 320 million. To translate that into current numbers, multiply it by about 30. Advertising in newspapers climbed from 149 million <clears throat> to 792 million by 1929. These advertisers openly sought and again I quote, to break down consumer resistance, to create consumer acceptance, and to create consumer demand. And they succeeded in astonishing fashion. Housing patterns, patterns changed as well, as structures built during the 19th century and fitted to many children and home production <coughs> gave way to smaller units without functional intent. Even family structure changed to conform to this commercialization. These new expenditures actually made the family less of a consumption unit. Rather, new ideas as to equality of marriage partners and in parent-child relations individualized the purchase of goods and services, distributing the family's spending money more generally through individual members, not through the family as a unit. This loss of family functions and the individualization of social life also meant a sharp decline in the authority of parents. As Hoover's committee summarized, the government is assuming a larger protective role with its policing forces, its enormously expanded schools, its courts, and its social legislation. More specifically, compulsory education laws represent an assumption of family functions by government agencies. While the public school teacher may be viewed as a substitute parent in regard to the function of training the child. These teachers were reaching into the home ever earlier, again, the committee's words, and so taking the child at a younger age. As homes and families failed in fulfilling other responsibilities, additional social welfare agencies moved in equivalent to the task of social reconstruction. In such a context, alas, parental rights were unmentioned because they were irrelevant, backward-looking, and even dangerous. According to the nation's leading experts, and again 90 years ago, America's future lay in the consummation of these social trends, leaving the family gone in all but name <clears throat> excuse me, and parental rights appropriately, but a memory. The force of inevitability in recent social trends bears the stamp of, uh, given to it by its author, William F. Ogburn, professor of sociology at the University of Chicago and director of research for this project. Ogburn held to a form of soft or academic Marxist analysis, arguing that technological change drove all else, from economic relations to social structure to ideas and culture. Cultural lag, a term that he popularized, commonly followed, with the remnant and fairly pathetic American family as a prime example. 
Truth, however, is more complex. A closer analysis of change in three areas discussed in recent social trends, the meaning of home, fertility decline, and advertising, reveals a very different story and a different possible future. First, on the meaning of home. Why has the fundamental transformation of the family home and its functions attracted so little direct attention? One scholar suggests that the pre-industrial system of family morality and family production has been little described precisely because it was so all-embracing. It was not a morality, it was the morality, and hence commonsensical and unremarkable. All the same artifacts of this social order survive in the historical record, such as this description of a fairly typical family home from a 19th century New England diary. My farm gave me and my whole family a good living on the produce of it and left me, one year with another, 150 silver dollars. Again, multiply that times 30. For I never spent more than $10 a year, which was for salt, nails, and the like. Nothing to eat, drink, or wear was bought as my farm produced it all. Now, in that time, the English or Germanic word home still bore meanings reaching over a millennium back. From the Viking era, this comes from my paternal grandfather's ancestral home in eastern Sweden, the province of Ustujutland, this was the legal definition of home sanctuary. You may not arrest a killer at his home. Good Viking language. More edifying definitions of Hymen, Middle German, Ham, Old English, and Heimer, Old Scandinavian, for home included village, dwelling, one's farm, peace for every man, love, beloved, marry, to bring to bed, to have sexual intercourse, to lie down, to return, and my favorite definition of home, where things are as they should be. Home represented material shelter, safe territory, sustenance, and a setting for family life, especially the presence of children. Home also served as an expression of identity. After the body itself is the most powerful extension of the psyche, as one Arthur puts it. The press to industrialize the whole of human life launched two assaults on this concept of home. The first was to sever work from home, to eliminate the functionality of the family dwelling and environs. At the intellectual level, this meant breaking the close connection of home to marriage and children. One historian has noted with seeming delight that not only had marriage and the family home been challenged, but also discarded by a large portion of the population of industrialized societies. As the authors of recent social trends correctly observed, American houses built after 1900 ceded most functions to the factories and schools, bringing a shift in design. As the official history of housing by the quasi-governmental Federal National Mortgage Association 
Fannie Mae, is that explained, the family was no longer the basic economic as well as the social unit. This means the disappearance of loom rooms, sewing rooms, work rooms, pantries, carpentry shops, storage sheds, cellars, chicken and pigeon coops, attics, and large kitchens, as productive activities now take place elsewhere. Housing design featuring open and materially useless space remained to promote the personality adjustments favored and endorsed by the experts. The second assault on the home was monetary. Again, prior to the industrializing of human life, home carried a special legal understanding where the house and property sheltering a family held preferred status. That ended in the early 20th century. In Great Britain, a 1925 law designed to encourage the sale and transfer of land turned the family home into a mere piece of capital. As legal scholar Lorna Fox elaborates, property law so embraced the rhetoric of land and home as investment and the assimilation of land with other forms of capital. The same change occurred in the United States, one also consummated in the first half of the 20th century. Instead of protections for home, all valuable parcels of land and structures should be allocated to individuals ready to pay the highest price on the free market. The family home so became just another thing for sale. Legal historian Lawrence Friedman summarizes, land transfers shifted from status to contract. Land rights were no longer matters of family, birth, and tradition. Rather, land was a commodity traded on the open market. The Fannie Mae history concurs. By the 1970s, housing in America ceased to serve primarily as a place for shelter and the nurture of children. Rather, houses had now become more important as a form of investment, forced savings, and hedge against inflation. Americans increasingly purchased houses with resaleability rather than livability in mind. Experts explained that there was no longer a standard family, such as mom, dad, and the kids, to guide housing demand. Indeed, the old problem of providing shelter to large families in urban settings had vanished since such families no longer formed. Hence, the safe, sound, sanitary provisions of the prior generation were no longer relevant. Human fertility. Human fertility in America has had episodes of serious decline from 1890 to 1930, from 1965 to 1990, and again since 2009. Demographic determinists such as William Ogburn continued to point to human adjustment to industrialization as the cause. Does this actually hold up? A better explanation comes from the Australian demographer, John C. Caldwell. He builds his argument on a careful analysis of population trends in both the developed world, Australia, Western Europe, and the United States, and the developing world. He looks specifically at Africa, which gives his approach added depth. His conclusion is unambiguous. The primary determinant of fertility decline is the effect of mass state 
education on the family economy. That's it. Compulsory state schools changed the direction of wealth flow and authority structures between generations. More specifically, family-based production of the pre-industrial sort rests on a framework of family morality, which enjoins children to work hard, demand little, and respect the authority of the old. Caldwell insists that this morality system can survive within a competitive capitalist economy, partly due to continued support by public religion and private adage to culture, and partly because parents can contrive ways to create and maintain family businesses, still involving forms of domestic production and control. However, and here Caldwell comes back to his main point, what the family morality cannot survive and is ultimately supplanted by is a new community morality that is eventually necessary for fully developed non-family production whether described as capitalist or socialist, and that is taught by national educational systems." Unquote. Mass state schools trample out family bonds and economies. Children change from assets into expensive liabilities, and fertility falls with no clear ending point except zero. Well, how does this actually work? Caldwell shows how compulsory state schooling reduces the child's potential for work inside and outside the home. Children must be in school for most of the day and then do homework and are quickly alienated from their traditional chores. Parents may feel that the child should retain all its energies for succeeding at school. Second, state schooling increases the expense of rearing children. Beyond fees, uniforms, and notebooks, school children demand more of their parents, such as better clothing. Indeed, the children's authority is the new authority, um, is the new authority of the school, and their guides are the non-traditional ways of life that have been revealed to them in the school. Third, mass state education upends directly parental rights. It becomes clear that the society regards the child as its future, and that it expects the family to protect the society's investment in the child for the future. Caldwell notes that strong child protection laws commonly appear during the early years of universal governmental schools. Fourth, state schooling speeds up cultural change and creates new cultures. In African societies, the schools suppress traditional ways in favor of corporate-friendly behaviors. Well, unmentioned by Caldwell, in Western Europe and North America, the latest new culture teaches LGBTQA behaviors. And fifth, state schools denigrate and crush local customs and economies in favor of a globalized economic order. As the educational historian Joel Spring puts it, around the globe, the promise of school graduation is a high income for a good shopping experience. More broadly, Caldwell's theory shows how compulsory school attendance is part of a massive shift in the social and legal treatment of children, where they are lifted out of families and treated as individuals with distinctive needs and claims. He writes, 
Governments have always been in competition with the family for loyalty. Textbooks show how states see the schools as the chief instruments for teaching citizenship, for going over the heads of the patriarchs, read parents, and appealing directly to the children. As to the consequences for fertility, Caldwell is blunt. No society can sustain stable high fertility beyond two generations of mass state schooling. Advertising. As it took form after 1900, commercial advertising was an intentional and direct assault on the confidence and authority of parents. In order to sell ever more goods and services, the productive family had to be torn down and left helpless, except for the products provided by the industrial order. Ads were the vehicles for this radical change. And yet, it needed to be done cleverly. The new advertisements commonly spoke with reverence for the family, while subtly and steadily undermining its control over children. Fathers were a clear target, with ads serving, in his story at Stuart Ewan's words, as propaganda to replace the father's authority. Writing in 1931, marketing consultant Edward Filene wrote that, since most men in the industrial milieu no longer controlled significant economic activities in their homes, and as women and children discovered that their economic well-being now came from industry, fathers must be relieved of many ancient responsibilities and therefore of many of their prerogatives. This decline of a materially based patriarchal authority left the male in crisis. As sociologist Lawrence Frank observed, the young man who wanted to fulfill the older conception of a competent male, ambitious, enterprising, prepared to support a wife and family, that young man actually faced a most perplexing situation, for he was no longer relevant. Indeed, real or potential fathers found themselves stri stripped of social power, except as their wages supported consumption by other family members. <clears throat> in 1929, the popular home economist Christina Frederick summarized the situation this way. Our industrial civilization is lush soil for the feminine, but barren soil for the masculine characteristics. However, women as mothers found that, that the advertisers worked to strip them of authority as well. Ad men were fully aware of the competition between new manufactured goods and the older skills, wisdom, and common sense of housekeepers. Again, striking a very delicate balance, the advertisers, for example, simultaneously educated women into using more biscuits while ridiculing baking at home. Instead, motherhood had become a task defined by female spending. The former house-based creator had become a buyer. As Columbia University household economist Benjamin Andrews explained, the home woman as purchasing agent is now essential to present well-being and to social progress. He continued, the world in which the typical family lives is the world built for it by the woman who spends. 
Christina Frederick was more blunt, and she said this without any sense of irony. The modern housewife, she proudly reported, is no longer a cook, she is a can opener. Just as remarkably, Frederick presented to industrialists a pledge to do all in their power to crush any lingering female domestic skills. I'm not making this up. She told, uh, urged corporate leaders to sign this pledge. I affirm that the manufacturer's real success is measured by the degree of thoroughness with which the owner or operator of the appliance has been able to adapt herself to a transformation from a hand and craft technique over into a machine process. At the same time, the ad men worked relentlessly to pulverize women's self-confidence as mothers. Everywhere in the home, women read, dangers lurked with solutions provided by the business sector. Sample messages from the Ladies' Home Journal in the 1920s included, Hygienia bottles do not carry germs to the baby and so are safe. Flytex bug killer is the best way to protect the defenseless child. Lysol is necessary because the doorknobs threaten children with disease. Pepsodent ensures that children will not suffer as you did from film on teeth. More insidiously, advertisers twisted female sexuality into another splendid marketing opportunity. In one notorious episode, business psychologist A.A. Brill explained how women might be turned into smokers. Some women regard cigarettes as symbols of freedom, he wrote. Smoking is a sublimation of oral eroticism. Meanwhile, the legal and cultural emancipation of women had suppressed many of the feminine desires. Accordingly, cigarettes might be relabeled and sold as torches of freedom. Ad man Edward Bernay proceeded to place in New York's 1929 Easter parade a contingent of young women lighting up their torches of freedom, gaining front page stories across the country. Meanwhile, a 1928 ad for Palmolive soap employed blatant Freudian Oedipal imagery to undercut again the confidence of women. It showed an attractive young mother, in Ewan's words, submitting to her boy child's scrutiny and pleasure, where the use of Palmolive would maintain her as his first love. From another angle, the ad man directly sought to break the parent-child bond the better to sell. Where parents would have more prejudices to overcome, children were blank slates, innocently open to consumer messaging. As advertising psychologist Alfred Poffenberger put it, the great difficulty that one meets in breaking habits among parents highlights the importance of introducing innovations by way of the young. The advent of television enhanced the opportunities here S.M. Dwaritz shows how broadcasters deliberately and effectively work to undercut parental influence. They design programming for children to repel adults while tantalizing the young. The goal, largely achieved, was to transform the parent from guardian and teacher 
into simply a purchasing agent for the child. In the end, the consuming family was still there. Mom, dad, and the kids enjoying a cornucopia of material goods. However, this family model was in truth a parody of the old. Real tangible bonds had diminished or even vanished. The nuclear family had actually gone atomic, scattered into the consuming wind. In the regime of advertising, the former natural linkages between parents and their children were thoroughly externalized, driven only by their common involvement with the time-space dictates of business. Well, as this more detailed recounting of developments in the meaning of home, fertility decline, and advertising affirms, the corrosion in legal and cultural parental rights during the last 100 years was accompanied by, and often preceded by, the evisceration of the natural family. Family decay, evident as early as 1930, had consequences with parents and their claims as the consistent losers. However, was this really inevitable? Did technological and economic innovations relentlessly drive family change in a distinctive and necessary way? No. As these three examples also show, ideological pressure, the politics of ideas and choices in the making of the laws and regulations and in the exercise of consumer spending occurred at every stage. Other options existed and they still do. Consider, for instance, the supposed inevitable separation of workplace from home. A curious essay, Sustaining a Sense of Home and Personal Identity, appeared in 1995. It sought to explain the strange persistence of paid work in some of the homes of Great Britain. In the spirit of William Ogburn, the authors agreed that within the context of the necessary split between home and work, the practice of work homework could be viewed as exceptional or abnormal, or in some cases, even deviant. A drastic case of cultural lag. While mentioning in practice, uh, well, well, I'm sorry, while mentioning in passing some recent attempts at computerized teleworking, the essay reported that the vast majority of home workers were a remnant, source of cheap, unreg unregulated later, labor, and corrupt franchising. Women who had small children or similar domestic care duties, a few persons self-employed, and those from minority ethnic groups seeking to escape racism in the industrial workplace. At the same time, the writers acknowledged that home workers often identified a desire to be a more integral part of home and family life as their chief motivation for working at home. And they redesigned their dwellings to create separate workrooms in an extra bedroom, a converted garage, a shed, or a hut of some kind. Well, almost needless to say, the year 2020 showed such home workers to be not a struggling remnant, but the avant-garde of a world workplace revolution and not only in Britain, but in the United States and globally. COVID-19 restrictions turned perhaps 2 billion persons into homeworkers, most for over a year. 
a frantic search for productive workspace and dwellings once deliberately stripped of them brought back the 21st century equivalents of sewing rooms and family workshops. A related surge in home gardening and home cooking buoyed demand for pantries and large kitchens. Many home working employers, employees found pleasure in a new freedom from the commute and a reintegration of work and family. Employers discovered the vast waste of time and emotional energy in the industrialized workplace, a truth already and delightfully exposed in the long running television series, The Office. The demand for new dwellings with defined and efficiently built workrooms soared. While the post-COVID order will see some return of the old ways, this undoing of the Industrial Revolution will predictably have a lasting and major legacy. Relative to fertility decline, there is also no record of inevitability. As already noted, John Caldwell implies that a family morality system and relatively high fertility can survive under industrial capitalism in the absence of compulsory mass state schools. He's more specific. Caldwell notes that in 17th and 18th century America, literacy was nearly universal in New England among women and men, girls and boys alike. And yet fertility was high, reaching an average of nine lives birth per women one of the highest fertility rates ever recorded in human history. In Australia, he traces the considerably higher mid-20th century birth rate found among Irish Catholics to denominational schools, which almost certainly taught the need for more traditional family relationships than the state educational system. Caldwell also finds in Europe prior to 1800, a persistence of high fertility among those classes that habitually educated their children in their homes. Evident especially among the wealthy employing tutors, these home schools exhibited a strong family morality that placed family interests first and in which family members helped each other. As late as 1900, a fifth of those entering England's Cambridge University were homeschooled. Finally, he shows that a classical education along the ancient model, like the quadrivium, did not provide much fuel to upset a traditional family morality system. In short, religious schools confidently teaching a family morality, home schools framed by family interests, and classical schools using ancient models do not produce the demographic woes caused by mass state schools. On advertising, the contemporary ambiguities are greater. Vast sums continue to be spent by corporations seeking to sell their wares, with home production of any sort still the primary target. The authority of fathers and mothers continues to be undermined, both subtly and directly. And yet, at least until now, the consumption of advertisements remains a voluntary act. The one exception, outdoor messaging, relatively insignificant. Meanwhile, the admin of Madison Avenue now face their own existential crisis. Revenues from advertisements in both magazines and newspapers are plummeting 100 years after the great surge began. Meanwhile, in television, 
Commercial stations are steadily losing ground to streaming services, which often do not employ advertising. True, computer sites are awash in little ads, both still and animated, yet these strangely resemble that sort seen in newspapers prior to 1900, more like postings on notice boards than the sophisticated corruptions that came later. And even these pale shadows can often be avoided. Oh, for that good old phrase, skip ad. Advertising has been called a kind of cross between poetry and adultery. I like that. Perhaps the wages of sin here have grown too unwieldy. And perhaps family morality systems, complete with respect for parental rights, are on the cusp of cultural and legal renewal. Thank you. Thank you.